good morning, everybody. It's my privilege to read the Bible with you this morning. We are reading from Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. I'm a little short in comparison to Jono. <laughs> um, if you would join with me as I read. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The son of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Thanks, Bill. Well, uh, keep your Bibles open. And uh, will you pray with me again? Our Father, we ask that you'd help us now as we come to your word to reflect upon it. We ask that you'd help us to, to know you better, that we may love you more and live your way. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Six to eight are going to head out for a Bible study now with uh, James. And uh, while they do, we've got uh, this going. Yeah, there we go. Nope, we'll go back one. Um, who's familiar with the phrase leading from the second chair? People are familiar with that? Leading from the second chair? Some of you have heard of it, some of you haven't. It's the idea of, of how to lead, how to get things done uh, when you're not in charge, but you are in your second in charge. You're in the, the second chair. So you're leading from the second chair. Now, while I was on holidays uh, last year, Gav and Ben were left in charge with the uh, task, well, one of the tasks that they had to do was to come up with um, a plan for our then upcoming series on the book of Judges, uh, which they did, and I returned to discover that our Judges series was to be called How Can a Holy God Dwell with a Sinful People? Part 2, which uh, Ben then explained, as uh, he then explained later as we started the series in Judges, that uh, it was called Part 2 because the book of Leviticus is... How Can the Holy God Live with a Sinful People, Part 1. And in a kind of Star Wars-esque way, we were doing Part 2 before we then come to Part 1 later on. And then he added, because Jono has decided that we're going to do Part 1, Leviticus, next year. Now, I hesitate to publicly accuse my brother and colleague of lying, but let's just say that in my mind... Preaching through Leviticus was still in the idea category rather than the plan category. But there you go. That's how we find ourselves embarking on a preaching series in the book of Leviticus through what was some rather clever leading from the second chair by one Reverend B. Pakula. But actually, rather than Ben having 
anything to confess in his eagerness to preach on Leviticus. I think rather I should confess my initial hesitancy to do this. The truth is that in all the sermons that I've preached over the last 20 years, I have not yet preached on Leviticus. Today is changing that. Now, perhaps that's because Leviticus gets a bit of a bad rap. Uh, it kind of gets a, this, this bad rap of being detailed, of being repetitive, maybe even boring. Uh, I have an old cartoon book at home uh, which pokes fun at some of the strange things that Christians do. It's called When Clergymen Ruled the Earth. And, uh, and it, yeah, it, it, it points out some of the kind of strange things that, that Christians do. And it includes this cartoon here, which I'm not sure if you can, can read it, but it, uh, it says, Christ, uh, sorry, Chris, the Calvinist, just lived for pleasure as he reads his massive tome uh, entitled Brief Notes on Leviticus, volume 11. Leviticus gets a bit of a bad rap, as apparently do Calvinists. Um, perhaps it's also, uh, the Leviticus is also avoided because we can think of it as being kind of out of date, that, uh, you know, it's, so it's not irrelevant. I mean, that was the Old Testament and, well, you know, we, we don't need all, all those, those sacrifices and offerings. We don't need to know about that because we've got Jesus. And perhaps you understand my slowness to commit to preaching on Leviticus. Perhaps when you heard, first heard that we we're going to preach through Leviticus, you, you thought, really? Well, I'd, I'd rather do something else. If you did think that, hopefully Ben's excellent uh, introductory sermon last week set you straight and hopefully has whetted your appetite for this part of God's word. But in case you're not there yet, consider this. If we're going to, to know and relate to the true and living God who is God and creator and judge over this world, then rather than pursuing and focusing on a picture of God that we might like or that we might feel comfortable with, rather than that, we need to get to know and better understand who God is. And the way to do that is to listen to what he says, what he reveals to us about who he is in the Bible. And the foundation to the Bible is these first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, over the past 10 years, at Harrington Park Anglican Church, we preached from Genesis a number of times, most recently Genesis 1 to 11 last year, and then Genesis 12 to 50 in 2017. We preached through Exodus, I looked it up in 2018, Numbers in 2015, Deuteronomy, I discovered was, was in 2010, probably due for another visit. But as I said, we've never preached from Leviticus. And this is the book of those five books that's at the centre, structurally and I think thematically, of this foundation of the Bible. So if we want to know God and relate to him rightly, we ought to pay attention to this foundational book that God has given us. And it is foundational because, as uh, our series title says, it, it, it asks and answers the question, how can a holy God live with a sinful people? What is required? What does it mean for humanity, for you and for me, to live, to dwell, to be with, to have fellowship with God? And think about that. 
If you were to come face to face with God, how do you think you'd feel? I mean, to meet the creator of the universe, to meet your creator, your judge. How does the the prospect of that make you feel? It's going back a while now, but um, who has, uh, show of hands, who has seen the uh, 1986 Australian classic movie Crocodile Dundee? Yep, there you go, it is a classic. Most hands in the room went up. Uh, To to remind you, because it was nearly, what's that, 34 years ago now, uh, Mick, Crocodile Dundee, is telling a story of of how he was attacked and almost killed by a crocodile and how he managed to drag himself for for over a week to safety. He thought he was going to die. And as he's telling this story, someone asked him, weren't you afraid of dying, Mick? And he said, nah, I read the Bible once, you know, God and Jesus and all them apostles, they were all fishermen, just like me. Yeah, straight to heaven for Mick Dundee. Me and God, we'd be mates. Me and God, we'd be mates. I think a lot of people like to think of God that way. If God's there at all, I'd like to think he's pretty relaxed about things. Now, thankfully, we're not left to be guided by uh, the, an iconic 1980s classic movie or by the imagination of what we might like to think of God as being like. The book of Leviticus sitting within the Bible as a whole tells us a lot about who God is and how people can know him, how we can be with him, how we can relate to him. Now, Ben's uh, intro sermon last week set Leviticus in its, uh, in its context of the, the Bible. God is, is making a, a way for his people to dwell with him, to, to bring them back to the tree of life, so to speak, to bring them to that Sabbath rest with God, their creator. And so after the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, God chose Abraham, made promises to him, and, and, uh, promised, and from, from Abraham came the nation of Israel. Uh, God saved Israel uh, out of Egypt under Moses and brought them to himself at Mount Sinai, to the mountain of the Lord, the place where God met with his people, gave them his law and entered into a covenant with them, a covenant in which he would dwell with his people in the tabernacle, also known as the tent of meeting. And so that brings us up to the end of the book of Exodus and it finishes with this great climax that the tabernacle is set up with all its intricate detail and the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God is dwelling with his people. It's this great climax. But there's a problem. Exodus 40 verse 35. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God is with them, but Moses can't enter. And if Moses can't enter, well, nobody can. There's this, there's this distance between God and people. And so Leviticus, the, the next book, just a few verses on, it begins, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him, notice, from the tent of meeting. Moses is outside the tent and God speaks from the tent. But then if you skip to the end of Leviticus, to the beginning of the next book, to Numbers 1 verse 1, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. How can a holy God live with a sinful people? 
Leviticus shows us how, and it it works, sorta. To use that great theological term that Ben introduced us to last week, it works, sorta, or at least for Moses, he's he's moved from outside to inside the tent. Leviticus has shown us what's required, what it means for humanity to have fellowship with God. And far from this being sort of merely some interesting historical study of ancient Israel and their practices, this tells us about God, about our God, our creator, our judge, our saviour, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's my hope that, that today and in this coming series that we will grow in our understanding of God, of who he is, grow in our appreciation of what it is he has done for us in Jesus. So let's get into Leviticus. Uh, This morning we're we're looking at the first six chapters uh, and in those chapters God speaks and gives to Moses instructions uh, regarding the offerings that they're to bring. So these are the Israelite offerings and there's five different types of offerings. Now there's similarities between them and there's some differences and the whole package together shows what is needed for God to dwell with his people, for people to dwell with God. We're not going to go through it in, uh, in detail, uh, though there is a lot of detail worth exploring. I encourage you to, to be reading through Leviticus. Uh, instead, what I'm going to do is give us a kind of a, a summary and then point out some of the differences between the offerings, some of the, the, the distinctives of the different offerings, and to hopefully paint a picture before us before I draw some implica- uh, implications and conclusions. So firstly, the burnt offering. Bertie, would you mind grabbing me a glass of water? Thank you. It's a bit dry. The burnt offering. Imagine you're an Israelite farmer. It's time to bring your offering to the Lord. So you go to the, you go to the, uh, the herd to select an animal. Say you've got, I don't know, 30 animals. Which one will you choose for the offering? You might think, well, let's pick the old one. I mean, it's going to be dead soon. Um, or maybe that sick one or that injured one, one that's not so important, you know, we're going to sacrifice it. God says no. Choose the young bull, a male without defect. That is, it's not an insignificant cost. This is a costly thing. This offering involves sacrifice. It's costly. Uh, but also, important, notice it's accessible. Thanks, Bertie. So they're to bring, if it's from the herder, a young bull. But if, they, if that's not possible, you could bring uh, a, uh, a goat or a sheep instead. Or if that's not possible, you could bring a dove or a pigeon. It's this nice little detail, I think, that shows us that actually being reconciled to God is not something that's only for the rich or the privileged. But it's costly. It's costly. And so you bring this animal... This animal that it says is without defect. And that phrase, the word that's, when it's applied to animals, translated without defect, when it's applied to people, it's translated blameless. And so this offering is to be blameless, it's to be acceptable to the Lord, as it says. And then in verse 4 it says that you're to, to lay your hand on the head of the animal, as if you're saying, this animal represents me, substitutes for me. It says, verse 4, it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. 
The Israelite himself is, is not able to ascend the mountain of the Lord, so to speak, because of his sin. And so instead he does it through his blameless substitute. You lay your hand on it and then you slaughter the young bull, verse 5 says. This symbolises death to self. It's an expression of the reality that sin deserves death. And, and this bull that represents the Israelite dies in place of the Israelite to make atonement, to bring reconciliation between God and the Israelite. So the bull is slaughtered. And then it says the priests are to collect the blood and splash the blood against the sides of the altar. Now it sounds pretty messy, doesn't it? Pretty gruesome. What's going on with this blood? Well, blood symbolises life. So over in Leviticus uh, chapter 17, verse 11, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So the blood, the, the life of the Israelite is, is symbolically poured out. It's sacrificed as the, the offering that represents the Israelite comes into contact with God's altar and dies. And so atonement is made. The other significant distinction of the burnt offering is that it's all burnt up. Notice verse 6 says there, you are, to, uh, skin, <coughs> sorry, you are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. The whole animal is burnt symbolizing total consecration a life yielded entirely to the lord in full submission and obedience the other thing to notice about this offering is that is that last phrase in verse 9 there it says that it is a burnt offering a food offering an aroma pleasing to the lord the whole offering is is burnt and and turned to smoke and ascends to the lord in the heavens Symbolically, the, the Israelite ascends to the heavenly mountain of the Lord as the substitute offering is burnt and turns to smoke. So that's the first offering, the burnt offering. Alongside it, or, or literally actually on top of the burnt offering, is the grain offering. And this was made of the finest flour uh, mixed with olive oil and burned along with some, of, uh, some incense. Two features of the, uh, the grain offering to notice. Firstly, in verse 2, it says there that it's a, a memorial portion. It's a memorial offering. It's meant to, uh, to remember something. It's about remembering. And secondly, in verse 13, it talks about how it's to be seasoned with the salt of the covenant. So putting that together, it's about remembering the covenant, their relationship with God. And it goes together with the burnt offering. Once atonement has been made, to remember the covenant that God has made with them. Not only has their sin been dealt with through the burnt offering, as that symbolizes, but they've entered into relationship with God as his covenant people, and they're to remember that. Uh, then thirdly, there's the fellowship offering. And as the name suggests, it expresses fellowship. It's, it's sharing together. 
Unlike the burnt offering, which is entirely burnt up on the altar, only part of the fellowship offering is burnt as a, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of it is to be eaten by the Israelites. Now, in ancient Israel, covenants were often uh, sealed with a shared meal. And you know, in a way, that's what's happening here. This offering represents and celebrates the, the covenant between God and his people. That's an idea that's, that's expressed later on in Deuteronomy 12, verses 6 and 7, where it says, There bring your burnt offering, offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. So the burnt offering makes atonement. The grain offering is added as a memorial of the covenant and fellowship offering is a shared meal in the presence of God. Two more offerings. Next is the sin offering. Now you might think, well, given all that, why do we need the sin offering? I mean, hasn't the burnt offering already dealt with sin? Well, yes. But the thing that that the sin offering singles out and deals with comprehensively is unintentional sin. Now, we all sin. Often we sin unintentionally and we we don't even realise until later what we've done. That's true of life. Our capacity to, to think and speak and act in sinful ways is profound. And what this sin offering does is it, is it highlights the all-pervasive nature of sin. And it also highlights the all-pervasive nature of God's mercy. God doesn't just turn a blind eye and say, oh, well, you know, they, they didn't really know what they're doing. They didn't really mean to that, so we'll just ignore that. No, he's just, he's fair, and he's merciful, and he makes provision for sin through the sin offering. In this way, he deals with their sin, with all of it. He atones for all of it. He brings purification. He brings forgiveness. And then lastly, there's the guilt offering. Uh, Now, the the particular focus with the guilt offering is on restitution, making good for something that you've done wrong, something for which you are guilty of. And so it says in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, it says there, they must make restitution uh, for, for what they have failed to do in regard to the holy things, pay an additional penalty of a fifth of its value and give it all to the priest. The priest will make atonement for them with the ram as a guilt offering and they will be forgiven. So it's got this idea of restitution. And also similarly over in chapter 6, verse 4, uh, when they sin in any of these ways and realise their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them, or the lost property they found, or whatever it was they swore falsely about, they must make restitution in full, adding a fifth to the value of it, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. So making atonement, making atonement brings, brings reconciliation, but it also involves making things right, that, actually paying back what is owed. Now, the other thing to notice here with this, this guilt offering is again, they're guilty of unintentional sin. That's what's being highlighted. Something that they, they sin unintentionally and then later become aware of. That is, they are guilty, but for a time they don't realise their guilt. That is, you can be objectively guilty of something, 
even though you don't feel guilty about it. I think that's an important point to consider because our, our culture places a lot of focus and importance on feelings. So much so that, we, that, that what we feel is kind of taken as, well, that's the only thing that matters. But we may or may not be, have feelings of guilt about things, depending on whether or not we're aware of them, or depending on whether or not we see what we did as, as, a, as a problem or not. But feeling guilty is different to being guilty. And thankfully, in God's all-encompassing salvation, he provides a way to deal with our guilt, not only our felt guilt, but our actual guilt. Well, there's a brief kind of helicopter summary of uh, the five offerings laid out in Leviticus 1-6. to And I guess the question to ask is, well, what does that mean for us? What does that teach us? Let me try and draw some uh, threads together. What Leviticus shows us is that God is a holy God and that we are a sinful people and that that is a big problem. So much so that this, this whole detailed, elaborate system is needed to address the problem. It shows us the problem and how big that is And it shows us how full and comprehensive and detailed is the solution. For us, sinners as we are, to dwell with the holy God, we need a blameless substitute to act on our behalf, to take the penalty of death for our sin, to turn aside God's wrath, to bring restoration, to bring forgiveness, to bring relationship, to bring peace with God. The offerings in Leviticus show us what's needed for salvation, what, what that means, what that looks like. They, they provide this, this framework for us to understand reconciliation, atonement, salvation, so that we understand well, what it is that Jesus did for us. But here's the thing, the God of Leviticus is the same God who came to us in Jesus, is the same God whom we worship today through Jesus. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we would be in the same position as the Israelites. We would need to to bring our offerings to God, the burnt, the grain, the peace, the sin, the guilt offerings. The only reason that we don't need to do that is not because we live in a different culture which which is more sophisticated or something, we don't have that sort of stuff. It's not because God has changed his mind and said, oh, sin isn't such a big deal or or something. It is simply because Jesus has fulfilled it all for us. He is the perfect offering to bring atonement, to bring forgiveness, to bring cleansing, to bring fellowship which ought to move us to wonder and praise of God that he has made the way for us to live with him. The book of Hebrews shows us in so many different ways how Jesus has fulfilled all of that. Let me finish with these words of exhortation from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Because of Jesus, the way is opened, so let us draw near to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that we can draw near to you. We can, we can enter into your heavenly throne room and call you Father because of the perfect sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Now, Father, I pray that if there are any here this morning or watching online who haven't yet taken hold of the promise of forgiveness and life that you hold out to to us in Jesus, please enable them to do that today so that they, along with us all, would draw near to you with a sincere heart, with a full assurance of faith, having been washed cleansed of a guilty conscience that we may be your people who live with you and for you and we pray this in Jesus name amen well we're going to um have a question time in a moment but before that uh, Rob's going to come and lead us in uh, continued prayer so I'll hand over to Rob All right, if you'd like to pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are glorious and holy. You are above us and maintain control over all things. We thank you for the undeserved grace you lavish upon us. We know that there is nothing we have done to deserve it. God, we are sorry for the sin that we so readily commit. We fail to honour you as we ought and so often seek selfish pleasures and comforts over righteousness. All of us fall short of the standard you expect from your people. We thank you that we can come to you in repentance, knowing you have already forgiven us for all our wrongdoing. We are sorry for our lack of self-control, for the times when we know the good we should do but fail to do it, for the times we are lazy or greedy or put off what should be done. We are sorry for the times when we are selfish and self-centred, choosing to do what pleases us at the expense of serving someone else. Father, we are sorry for our lack of generosity. We know that everything we have is from you, and we often don't use our time, money, or energy in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us to appraise all we have in the light of eternity, knowing that joy is not found in an abundance of possessions. Lord, help us to draw closer to you through the reading of your word and prayer. Let us remember that our relationship with you should be a higher priority than anything else in this life. We pray for the relationships for those in our church. Let married couples love each other selflessly and sacrificially, edifying each other through wise counsel and service. Let parents lead their children wisely, disciplining where necessary and providing freedom when possible. Please help those who are single to be patient and content, using their gifts and abilities to serve you. We pray also for the children of the church. 
We pray you will build them up into faithful servants of your kingdom and work in their hearts to develop respect for others and maturity as they grow up. We pray for our church and our church leaders and give them wisdom as they make difficult decisions for the present and the future. Help them to be discerning and grant them insight into the current situation so they may lead our church effectively through this testing time. We pray for those around the world who are struggling with sickness, either physical or mental. We continue to pray for a COVID vaccine and wisdom for leaders around the world making decisions for their people. As the illusion of control slips from many societies around the world, bring more people to yourself as they see their need for salvation. Help us to cling to you amidst all the uncertainty and pain of this world. We are grateful for all that you give us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.